Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Falls are a significant cause of injury in older people that can impact quality of life. Older people sometimes fall when they are taking psychoactive medications, including antidepressants. Because adverse events may be underreported when relying on spontaneous account, Oakes and colleagues asked patients directly. This was a post hoc analysis of fall events solicited using a questionnaire at each study visit over 24 weeks. Patients were at least 65 years old and had major depressive disorder. 249 patients were randomly assigned to duloxetine, 60 milligrams a day, and 121 patients were randomly assigned to placebo. The percentages of patients who fell based on the questionnaire responses were compared between treatments. After 12 weeks of treatment, 17.3% of patients treated with duloxetine experienced a fall, which was not significantly different from 11.6% with placebo. Over 24 weeks, 24% of patients taking duloxetine fell, compared to 15.7% with placebo, and this difference was, again, not statistically significant. The incidence of solicited falls while exposed to duloxetine or placebo for 12 weeks in this study was about seven times higher than the spontaneously reported treatment emergent fall events in an eight-week study of older patients with depression. Direct assessment of fall events greatly increases the number reported by patients. Clinicians should remain vigilant about the possibility of falls in older patients taking duloxetine or any antidepressant treatment. This study was sponsored by Lilly USA. Selegiline is an irreversible inhibitor of monamine oxidase enzymes. Selegiline transdermal system provides a novel mechanism to overcome some of the safety concerns associated with oral administration. Since adherence and health outcomes are strongly associated, Sklar and colleagues conducted a retrospective exploratory claims-based analysis to discern the pattern of use of selegiline transdermal system relative to other pharmacotherapies for treatment of major depressive disorder and the level of adherence relative to other antidepressant pharmacotherapies. De-identified patient-level data from 2010 to 2011 were abstracted from Medicaid, Medicare, and managed care archives. Antidepressant treatment failure was defined as receipt of greater than 90 days of initial antidepressant. Of the 2,985 patient records identified, the majority of patients received selegiline transdermal system as a second or third treatment option following treatment failure. Only 71 patients received selegiline transdermal system as first-line therapy. 
Patients were more likely to receive selegiline transdermal system for 60, 90, or 180 days compared to other therapies, irrespective of treatment failure. Among patients who did not fail treatment in the first 90 days, selegiline transdermal system was associated with a greater probability of receipt compared to selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors at 120 days. Although limited by the small sample size of patients receiving selegiline transdermal system versus other pharmacotherapies, the results suggest that after antidepressant treatment failure, earlier use of selegiline transdermal system may be warranted. Support for this research was provided by Myelin Specialty, LP. The use of biomarkers in early Alzheimer's disease detection is growing. However, it is not clear whether sophisticated biomarkers are more efficient than simple screening or neuropsychological tests focused on memory. The goal of this study was to evaluate the predictive value of the memory impairment screen in elderly subjects with subjective memory loss. A prospective cohort of 105 patients with subjective memory loss was followed up from December 2007 to April 2011 in Spain. At baseline, the patients underwent neuropsychological examination with the Spanish adaptation of the mini mental state examination, the memory impairment screen, the clinical dementia rating scale, the blessed dementia rating scale, and the geriatric depression scale. The final endpoint of the study was the conversion to dementia mostly of probable Alzheimer's disease type. The patients were re-evaluated every six months. After a mean follow-up of two years, 57 patients developed Alzheimer's disease and 48 did not. A baseline score of 0 to 1 on the memory impairment screen predicted conversion to Alzheimer's disease with a sensitivity of 42.9%, a specificity of 98%, and a positive predicted value of 96%. In the clinical setting, in patients referred for memory complaints, the memory impairment scale score at baseline is useful to predict who will develop Alzheimer's disease within at least a year. The authors conclude that the memory impairment screen would be more useful when combined with a higher sensitivity test. Comorbid mood and substance disorders are often a hurdle to effective treatment and add-on strategies are usually adopted to overcome treatment resistance. Craving for alcohol is associated with abnormal activation in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. The authors of this article investigated the possible anti-craving efficacy of high-frequency deep transcranial magnetic stimulation of the bilateral dorsolateral prefrontal cortex 
in three patients with comorbid long-term DSM-4-TR dysthymic disorder and alcohol use disorder. Alcohol use disorder in all three patients had its onset before the emergence of dysthymic disorder. Patients had been treated with various drugs before their intake to an outpatient service and all were detoxified on stable drug treatment for at least three months before being referred to deep transcranial magnetic stimulation. Their clinical response to drugs and or psychotherapy was considered unsatisfactory. The addition of deep transcranial magnetic stimulation to ongoing treatment was associated with reduced depression and reduced alcohol craving in all patients. Clinical improvement was enduring, lasting for at least six months. The authors conclude that deep transcranial magnetic stimulation may be a useful addition to currently available strategies to address difficult-to-treat clinical conditions such as comorbid alcohol use disorder and dysthymic disorder. Sleep complaints are common in patients with psychiatric disorders, especially when there is an exacerbation of psychiatric symptoms. Treatment of sleep disturbances in these patients is crucial, as several studies have suggested that poor sleep predicts worsening of psychiatric symptoms. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is an evidence-based treatment for insomnia. However, its use is limited due to lack of trained therapists. This study looked at the effects of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia sleep skills education on the quality of sleep in patients attending a psychiatry partial hospitalization program. The Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index was administered to patients when they entered the psychiatry partial hospitalization program and at the time of completion. Patients typically attend the program for one month and are encouraged to attend various groups. The authors compared the group of patients who attended cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia sleep skills education with those who completed the partial hospitalization program but did not attend the sleep skills group. It is important to note that both groups attended the Psychiatry Partial Hospitalization Program and were receiving active psychiatric care. No differences were found between the two groups in regard to age, sex, and psychiatric diagnosis. The sleep quality and initial sleep latency of both groups improved after completing the Partial Hospitalization Program. There was a decrease of three points on the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, which is considered clinically significant. The patients who attended the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia Sleep Skills Education showed more improvement in sleep quality than those who did not attend the group. However, the difference was not statistically significant. The authors conclude that a structured psychiatric partial hospitalization program has beneficial effects on subjective sleep quality and initial sleep latency of patients with acute psychiatric exacerbation. They speculate that the daily structure provided during the program may have been an important factor, in addition to other factors, in improvement of the patient's sleep quality.
A phenomenological approach explains the apparently unintelligible experiences of patients with schizophrenia as a disruption of the normal self-perception. Patients with schizophrenia suffer from a decline of me, which is the background core of their experiences. Normally, tacit experiences intrude into the forefront of their attention, and the sense that inner world experiences are private diminishes. These patients lose the sense that they are the origin of their thoughts and actions, and their self-evident network of meanings and a solid foundation of life disintegrate. Subsequently, their experiential world is transformed, alienated, intruded, and fragmented. Hearing and colleagues suggest that there is a gap of understanding between the symptoms, as formulated by health professionals, and the experiences of patients with schizophrenia. The authors advocate a phenomenological investigation to bridge that gap by giving some insight into the experiential world of patients with schizophrenia and by connecting these experiences to the observed symptoms. In this article, they perform a phenomenological investigation of the self-experiences and actions of four patients with schizophrenia. Read the full article at primarycarecompanion.com. Atrial fibrillation is an irregular cardiac rhythm that occurs secondary to abnormal electrical signals throughout the atria. These irregular electrical impulses result in a loss of coordinated activity between the atria and ventricles, allowing the atria to contract rapidly and irregularly with a subsequent impairment in cardiac output. Atrial fibrillation is associated with increased rates of central nervous system complications, including cognitive impairment and dementia. However, the mechanism by which atrial fibrillation causes cognitive impairment is unclear. Potential mechanisms include microemboli and transient cerebral hyperfusion secondary to atrial beat-to-beat variability. In this issue's rounds from the General Hospital, Gross and Stern provide a review and discussion of the literature that should prove useful and assist you when making treatment recommendations for your patients who have atrial fibrillation. Some healthcare professionals become consumed with disease processes and allow these data to dominate their fund of knowledge. In the process, they forget that a human being forms the host for the disease process in question. When clinicians limit their interaction with the patients to the disease and its treatment, they may obtain misleading information, or valuable information may be omitted. Engagement, therefore, is the first necessary stage of medical interaction. In this issue's psychotherapy casebook, we present the case of Mr. A., a new patient admitted to the nursing home unit at a VA hospital who appeared to offer a challenge with regard to engagement. He had maintained few good relationships, and his focus was primarily on the chronic pain he suffered after experiencing combat and multiple accidents over the course of his life. Read how the author established a connection with the patient that allowed brief psychotherapy to be useful by visiting primarycarecompanion.com.
www.thinkingoutloud.com. Now we invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Memory Disorders Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of Mr. A, a 68-year-old man who is displaying increased irritability as well as verbal aggression towards his spouse. He is having difficulty finding words to express himself, struggles to complete his thoughts, and has become increasingly repetitive in conversations. He is also exhibiting significant impairments in instrumental activities of daily living. Does the patient have dementia, mild cognitive impairment, or an underlying psychiatric disorder? Is he cognitively normal? Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about this patient and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this instructive offering. In this issue of The Companion, we also examine the relationship between reckless driving and borderline personality disorder and present case reports on timely topics such as abuse of bath salts and panic attacks induced by St. John's Wort. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including the opportunity for continuing medical education credit and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.